You're listening to the really useful podcast. This is the tech podcast for technophobes from makeuseof.com. My name is Christian Corley and with me is Ben Stegner. And we are here to bring you the latest news that matters, whether you know your tech or you don't. We've also got some tips and tricks and we've got some recommendations from myself and from Ben. Uh, Ben, how are you? I am doing good. Uh, a little update from last time we talked. I am using the PC that was in boxes uh, last week when we talked. So up and running. Went on Windows 11 now. Got a nice fresh computer and uh, it's feeling good. So I'm, oh, I'm happy. Lovely, lovely, lovely. I've actually just been playing with a uh, computer that I got hold of some time ago. And I was hoping it would be uh, a little better than it is. Now, I was not to say it's a bad computer, but in terms of uh, audio, it isn't great. Uh, which is a bit disappointing. But on the other hand, it's really light and it's really fast. It's just the audio isn't great, unfortunately. But what can you do? I don't know if I've ever used a computer where I find the audio super impressive, to be honest. Yeah, to to be honest with you, I do. it's one of the things I miss about building my own computer is putting a sound card in that I've spent a lot of time researching and being pretty confident that it's going to do the job. With laptops, you just don't seem to get the same depth of sound i don't think yeah it's one of those things where like when you look up a laptop review they always mention the obvious stuff like how much ram it has and all that but it's one of those kind of not subjective isn't the right word but like the softer problem where like you know the keyboard's mushy or the screen doesn't look good at certain angles or the sound sucks like it's like those little things you don't really notice until you've used it for a while yeah yeah totally agree totally agree so this week we're going to be looking at microsoft revealing a interesting fact about resetting your Windows PC. We'll be looking at Bluetooth getting better on Windows 11, and we'll be having a chat about the Steam Deck, which has uh, started materializing over the past few days and has some interesting capabilities that maybe people weren't quite expecting. We've also got some tips and tricks. We'll be looking at communication and collaboration tools, how a modular laptop could be the best way to build your own laptop, And we've got our recommendations as well. But let's go straight into the most recent news. Resetting your Windows PC doesn't actually wipe everything, says Microsoft. You thought that when you were resetting your computer that things were getting wiped. But apparently that isn't the case. There is a bug. And it affects Windows 10 and 11. It's been uh, released on Microsoft Docs. When attempting, it says, to reset a Windows device with apps which have folders with repass status such as OneDrive or OneDrive for Business, files which have been downloaded or synced locally from OneDrive might not be deleted when selecting the Remove Everything option. That's a bit of a pain. You might want to wipe all your data and then sell your PC and then finding that that's not been wiped. That could be a bit of a blow. Yeah, that's that's basically the entire point of using that option. When you reinstall Windows, you can choose to uh, just reinstall and not do like a deep clean like this. But with this yeah. option, you're, you think that you're completely blowing out the entire drive with, you know, overwriting it with garbage data, basically, so that if, if you know, someone tries to recover it, they can't. And uh, apparently that's not really happening. So I, mean, I doubt that most people you'd be selling a computer to would know how to do that. But obviously, you don't want to give them the option. And since it's so nice, like for so many years, if when you wanted to do this, it wasn't built into Windows. So you had to run a third party program to blow out everything on your disk but now you have to you can you, you can use the built-in option and it's so convenient um until it doesn't actually work like it should and that's 
terrible. <laughs> well, I think there is a solution to this, and that is if you are going to sell your computer after wiping it, is just to use a disk cleaning tool to wipe it completely. If you're a hands-on sort of person, you could replace the drive entirely with a completely fresh one, of course. Until Microsoft fix this bug, uh, that is really your only option. But then again, I suppose the majority of people wiping are wiping to reinstall, aren't they? So. Yes, but uh, yeah, but if you're wiping to reinstall, I wouldn't think you would do the full disk. Clean you probably wouldn't. That's not, no, that's not no. really necessary. The two, the only two reasons I can think of is if you're going to give it away or sell it, or if you're going to just trash it. So in that case, if you're just getting rid of your computer, you can just you know take a hammer or the drive. I mean, it's low tech, but obviously no one's going to recover if, if it's physically destroyed. But if you're selling it, that's not an option, of course. Yeah, sure. We'll move on. Windows 11 will finally make handling Bluetooth devices easy. You've probably noticed the difference between, and when I say you, I am not necessarily talking to Ben, although I'm sure he has, the difference between uh, connecting a Bluetooth device on Windows compared with doing it on a mobile. It's, it's a bit of a pain, isn't it? I have not noticed this just yet because I wasn't using my Bluetooth headphones. For, oh, I, I, today's the first day I've used my, I built it on Thursday night and then I, I didn't have the time to configure everything for Friday. So okay. today's my first working day using my new computer. But um, yeah, reading through, reading through this, I understand what, what, what we're saying here. Um, like even on Mac OS, when you click on the Bluetooth button, you get a list of everything that you've paired. So you can just say, oh, I want to pair my mouse or I want to disconnect my headphones. But on Windows 11 right now, it's just turn Bluetooth on or off with no other really option to do anything. It's there. a very old sort of win. I mean, that menu in the system tray, it's barely changed since Windows XP. Certainly not since Vista. I do like, sort of related, I do like the new like quick settings panel in Windows yeah. 11. Um, yeah. It's way, like the one in Windows 10 is just like huge. It just feels bulky. Um, this one feels a little more modern. Like you'd something, it looks like something you'd see on modern Mac v versions or on even a Chromebook. Um, like it has what you need and doesn't have a bunch of nonsense bloating the way. So this will be another step into making it feel modern. The thing is, Bluetooth is such a popular, like a widely used feature. So for it to have taken so long, I mean, we're essentially talking two versions of Windows, aren't we? To properly update the Bluetooth connection menu so it is easy to use and is, I guess, as well for those, the tablets and the hybrids to make it sort of touch friendly. That's a long time away, isn't it? We're talking over five years. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I'm from my I'm I'm thinking about it from my use where I connect, you know, headphones from my desktop, but that's most people I would imagine are using this on a laptop and they have several Bluetooth devices and they're switching back and forth or they're connecting their phone to transfer files and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you're right. This should have been done years and years ago. It's not like Bluetooth is just coming into popularity. I mean, <laughs> I've been using it for all sorts of devices for many years. So, that's a feature to look out for in Windows 11. It's being rolled out to Windows Insiders first and then will appear in the main Windows 11 releases further down the line. Now, here's a blast from the past. Anonymous. A few years ago, they were synonymous with uh, online interference in all sorts of things against uh, totalitarian regimes, elections that they didn't like. They've been quiet for a few years, but over the past few days, they've been wound back up into action and have attacked Russia's state-run news services in a major cyber attack. Now, we're recording this 
at the point where uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. If you're listening to this in the future, uh, most of our tips and tricks remain relevant uh, long term. As I say this, there is a United Nations meeting taking place and there is a 17-mile column of Russian military working its way towards Kiev. So things are quite desperate in Ukraine. But Russians themselves don't seem to be very happy with what's going on. And we now have found out that the Russian news service TASS and several other state-owned media companies, report MSN, have been taken down by the anonymous hacker collective. And they've basically um, put a message up with the number 5,300, which is the number of Russian troops that Ukraine claims to have killed, and a message, Dear citizens, we urge you to stop this madness. Do not send your sons and husbands to certain death. Putin makes us lie and puts us in danger. We were isolated from the whole world. They stopped buying oil and gas. In a few years, we will live like in North Korea. What is it for us to put Putin in the textbooks? This is not our war. Let's stop it. It's an interesting... I, I mean, I know Anonymous have a bit of history of interfering with things like that, but it's... Again, it's as a collective, and the, the background for Anonymous is kind of... Lots of it's mixed and it's very kind of like fluid isn't it and there's been people have suggested in the past that anonymous is heavily linked to particular security services around the world haven't they but it's interesting that they've come back at this point whereas they've been completely quiet for the past few years yeah i was trying to think about um when you brought this up that we were going to cover this i was trying to think about the last time that i've heard anonymous or even like there was a big high profile thing um, I feel like when I'm, I'm trying to remember, like when I was in high school, like I think it was 2012 when those bills like SOPA and the other one were going through the U.S. government yeah. about like the stopping online piracy that would have basically made like memes illegal. I remember when those bills were working their way through the government, Anonymous was big on shutting down websites and saying, you know, we're, we don't want to stand for this. But I feel like that's it's been pff, at least what five or eight years since there's been anything high profile with them. And it is, we don't really know, like, we don't have anything nailed down. Like, I don't know very much about the group, how, I don't know how big they are, or they're just, they just kind of seem like when they decide they want to fight back against something, they do not really too much continuation between their, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, events. It, it, it is essentially a badge in a front, isn't it, for someone to do something anonymously? Yeah, it, it's not a, you know, I, I believe in this so strongly, I'm going to put my name on the line. It's kind of just a, we're going to take down this website because we don't like what you're doing. And then it gives, they have to try to track them down. And I, I don't know. I don't really have too much of a thought about it, I guess. Yeah. The, the, I like this, it almost sounds like they're trying to like claw back into relevancy just because it's been so long. Well, another way of looking at it is a few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, some cyber attacks had taken place against Ukraine. And it was not certain at that point whether they were state-sponsored or whether they were just like opportunistic uh, attacks on infrastructure. With the added benefit of the context of our recent history, it seems more likely to be the first option. So I think we're probably going to be seeing this as it is a uh, incursion by Russia into the edge of the European continent and to the, you know, one country away from the actual European Union, there is the very real possibility of this turning into a full-blown, not just a conventional war, but also a cyber war 
in a way that we haven't seen so far. You know, we've seen things like attacks on Iran with their centrifuge and the Stuxnet worm and a few other things around the world since then. But we've and attacks on North Korea as well in along similar lines. We've never seen anything quite like this. Now, there seems to be quite a lot of reports of cyber attacks over the past couple of weeks between Ukraine and Russia. We're going to move on to the Steam Deck, which is if you don't know, it's a handheld device a bit wider and a bit chunkier than a Nintendo Switch. It is essentially a PC gaming machine that comes with SteamOS, which is a Linux-based operating system. A lot of uh, additional software layers to, to allow uh, a lot of Windows games to work. And it's proving to be getting a lot of good reviews. Now, I will preface that by saying that a lot of... Almost all of Steam's hardware gets good reviews, and yet it struggles to actually get a foothold. So long term, this might not be a good story for Steam Deck. Uh, I have a Steam Deck ordered. I believe I'm in the quarter two distribution, so I've got a bit of a wait for mine. Uh, are you getting one, Ben? No, I will not be just... Well, A, I'm not interested enough in it to get in line for it and i I think i've talked about before how i'm not a big pc gamer yeah um so if i if i i have a steam link the physical hardware for it so um if there were games i could play with a controller that i have on pc i would use that to play them on my tv but this device just isn't for me i'm just not a pc person so the idea of being able to play them on a mobile device just doesn't really appeal to me but i'm not really a big mobile player much now when i was a kid more you know like play game boy in the car or whatever but nowadays i prefer to play on at home on a on a big tv or screen so um, I guess Q two is not too bad. I mean, for how popular this thing has seemed to be, is it just luck who got it first, or was it first come first serve? It's a first come first served basis. I understand that uh, people in C, I think it was Seattle, are getting hand delivered Steam decks from Gabe Newell oh, wow. of Valve, oh, wow. yeah, <laughs> with signed boxes. Um, there's a few interesting things about the Steam Deck that we will maybe talk about in more depth later on. Certainly, when one of us actually has one, uh, I'm not sure if Gavin's ordered one. However, we now know the Steam Deck will run Red Dead Redemption 2 and it will run Crisis Remastered. Crisis Remastered and Crisis before that. Very uh, graphic intensive game. Red Dead Redemption, you, you may know, is a huge open world uh, Western cowboy game. So to see uh, these games running on the Steam Deck, neither of which they haven't been released on Linux, so they're running with a bit of a level of, uh, um, of, uh, of uh, software layers and uh, special drivers that have been developed over the past few years for this purpose. It's quite amazing to see the this happening. The, uh, there's a lot of games in the Steam library. I understand the intention is that almost all of them will be able to run on the Steam Deck eventually. There's a long way to go, of course. And there is a way of finding out if your games will run on the Steam Deck, which I'll include in the show notes, along with everything else that we are discussing in this week's really useful podcast. But I'm really excited. I've seen lots of good reviews of it, and I'm really excited. I'm just The fact that I don't get to order mine until quarter two is a bit disappointing. Yeah, I wonder if this will be something where, you know, this whole year and going into next year, it'll be people are waiting for it for months or if it's, if it'll pass a point where you can just walk into a store and find one or, you know, order one online and get it shipped in a normal time without this wait. 
I am curious if that'll how much that'll drop. Yeah, well, I mean, we, I mean, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago with uh, Ukraine and Russia, we do have a huge kind of distribution issue potentially coming along for certainly for Western Europe. Anyway, there are various uh, supply chain issues set to strike there. So whether the Steam Deck is anything that's affected by that or not, time will tell. It has already been delayed in order to get on top of the orders and for it to roll out in a a timely manner. So for anything else to come along and get in the way of that is beyond the quarter one release. Could be, uh, like you say, that could be a bit of a wait. Yeah, so might have to get comfy with uh, playing <laughs> with the... games as you as you know them yeah. now. Absolutely. Or, you know, on a Nintendo Switch. If you're yeah, like a portable option. Yeah, yeah. How to avoid the overuse of communication and collaboration tools. Ben, you and I use a few of these, don't we? Yeah, just a couple every uh, once in a while. <laughs> uh, we um, make use of our kind of our workflow is largely based around Slack chats and Asana boards. And, you know, anything else that anyone else wants to use to improve workflows. But too many of these tools can be a problem. They can get in the way. I find things get in the way quite often and I tend to want to just walk away from what I'm doing in order to sort of take a break. How do you cope with this kind of onslaught of collaborative app? Uh, it can be tricky. Um, I, I tend to, when I use anything new, I think I've talked about this before on the show, like anything new to me, I get overwhelmed with what it can do. Um, so for example, Notion is like a, a great like note-taking app. You can use it for something as simple as just making new pages of notes with bulleted lists. Um, or you can use, you can get as complex as embedding all kinds of stuff in it and making a personal wiki and linking between pages and stuff. So um, it's like Slack specifically, because we've used it for years, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable with it. Um, Asana, I, I like now, it took me a little bit to get used to, but I do like it. Um, in terms of how I juggle it or how I feel about it, I, I think when you only have a couple, it's not too bad. I think anything more than like two apps that you use constantly can be tricky because you have to update things in multiple places and worry about people not getting ping alerts you know do not disturb might be different on every app and that kind of thing so um yeah it's it's tricky we have some tips and tools to help you to avoid getting lost in a sort of fog of digital collaboration apps number one is to prioritize your team and company needs or team and group needs or whatever it is your organization needs whatever it is that your needs are prioritize those on a day-to-day basis and make the best of workspace suites i think the most important thing is to not get distracted by other things choose the best tools that allow integrations and use a centralized knowledge repository it's sort of like wiki you can use wiki you can download wiki software and set it up as a website either on a computer or on a centralized server and then just like you then have all the stuff that you need, policies, tutorials on how to do particular things, complete specific tasks, whether it's signing up or sharing or even just guides for the actual collaboration over different sites. They can all be stored there as well. Um, I think the most important thing is, as uh, as we found, is having a budget for it, isn't it? Because all these tools, there's so many collaboration tools and they all have a free option, but then the really tasty features, they're all paid. 
Yeah, it's almost like you have to try a bunch of them and then decide which one works best for your team. Yeah. Well, there's probably, I mean, unless your team is very small, chances are you're going to probably have to pay at least one, pay for at least one. Um, most of them are per user. So obviously as you grow, it gets more expensive, but you may be able to supplement that with, with some free tools, or you might have to pay for two of them. Yeah, it's definitely not cheap to get a good tool. And with so many, it's tough to know which one is worth paying for. Another tip that just came to mind I wanted to mention too, this is more like person to person and like company strategy. But one thing I recommend for good collaboration etiquette is whenever you're noting basically anything on another platform, always uh-huh. include a link to it. So for example, if someone says, you know, hey, there, I'm having problems with an article, something's happening, always include a link to it. So I can just click the link and see what you're seeing. Or, um, hey, there's a task on Asana that I had a question about, like, don't make me open up Asana and search for your tasks and figure yeah, out which yeah. one, like, you know what I mean? I don't have any of the context if you ask me something I don't know anything about. So when you provide a link to a task and I can read through and see the discussion that's happened. That's very useful. Or, you know, I don't, I don't have to track down the article on our website or whatever. So always include a link so that everybody's on the same page without having to search for it. Yep. Good advice. Really good advice. Okay. We're going to move on now to laptops. Ben's already discussed the uh, thing that he's been doing is building a PC. And I use a laptop. But is there a middle ground? Is there a way of building your own laptop? Yes, there is. There's such a thing as a modular laptop, and there's various options available to you here. The problem with laptops is that they're all different shapes and sizes, much like PCs, but unlike PCs, the internals are different. A a standard PC, you can take any number of standard PCs, line them all up, take the cases off, and inside the general layout is the same. There's a motherboard, there's memory, there's processor, there's fan, there's power supply, there's hard drive. And they all generally go together in roughly the same way. Laptops is a different matter entirely. Everything is based around the chassis and the cooling. And you take that into account. The motherboard and has to be built around the chassis and the cooling and uh, mechanism and so the cpu position is then depends upon that as does the ram and the graphics chip and the storage so things can be a little bit tricky there are options however module uh, laptop option one is to upgrade so you take an old laptop and you upgrade the bits that you can typically these are the storage and the RAM. You could get a bare bones laptop as well. A few of those are available. Uh, there's one, uh, there's a site called RJ Tech, which will provide bare bones laptops that you can then find the parts, the RAM, choose a CPU, choose a storage. But again, it's the same sort of thing. Option two is to get a modular laptop. There's a thing called Framework. Framework laptops start at $999. They're basically a laptop with a number of slots that you then customize. It's not cheap, but it does give you that fully customized laptop that is essentially modular. And your third option is to build your own. 
there are different ways of using custom equipment to uh, using off the shelf equipment to custom build your own laptop. The, the most popular option is with a Raspberry Pi, but the number of kits that are available for that have decreased over the past few years. There used to be a company, or there still is a company called PyTop, which used to sell a ready-to-build Raspberry Pi laptop kit. No longer does that. I suspect that Raspberry Pi will actually bring out their own laptop at some point. After all, there's a company called Pine, which makes a Pinebook. Uh, it's a laptop, a, a Linux laptop with an ARM processor, which you can buy for under $100. So it stands to reason that Raspberry Pi will probably enter that market at some point. So those are your three options. But at the end of the day, it may just be easier just to go out and buy a laptop or a second-hand laptop if your concern is how much all of this is going to cost. Ben, have you ever considered, has it ever struck you as a good idea that, you know, flash of light, a light bulb going off in the middle of the night, I want to, buy, I want to build my own laptop? Uh, no, I've never thought that. Um, <laughs> I'm not really too like building a desktop is about as handy as I go in terms of like hands on stuff. I've never been super good with my like building things. So any like obviously a desktop is pretty easy in the grand scheme of things. So anything where you would have to perform modifications on the laptop that aren't official or, you know, like something where you got to get kind of down and dirty into it and uh, tear things up and do things you could easily break something would I would not feel very comfortable with. So I'm also just not a huge laptop user now. I mean, I use one in college because I was moving between classes all the time, obviously. But nowadays, I, mean, I have a MacBook I use when I'm traveling and working, but I've never thought to do this. It sounds it sounds cool if you're into it, but for me, I don't, I don't. I think the cost would and the potential to screw things up would outweigh any benefit. I uh, a few years ago, before I actually got my first laptop, I thought it would be a cool idea to um, build my own. Now. Ah, I can I, I see what you're thinking here. But what I did was look for parts of a specific model of laptop on eBay that were going cheap. So, like, say, a, a broken laptop was almost trying to sell, like, the chassis and the monitor or the chassis and the keyboard. I would buy that. Then I would look for the display. Then I would look for the suitable motherboard for it etc 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 and the idea was long game yeah play the long game didn't work out i got bored (laughs) and ended up buying a dell (laughs) i guess yeah not only would you get kind of tired of that it also if you waited too too long then you could be buying like incompatible parts or or like you know the stuff you bought six months ago isn't really relevant compared to the stuff you just bought it depends on how, how, how compatible the parts are yeah i think i think it was probably a good way of doing it but a very slow way of doing it and unless you're determined to you know play that long game it's really not worth it so good for the right people but probably not super generally applicable for most yeah okay we're just going to pause now ben what which one are we going to go for are we going to go for common gaming terms creative commons or google drive 
it's up to you. So the gaming terms one probably won't translate super well to the part. There's just so many in there and some yeah. of them are kind of specific. So that's probably like overwhelming. Um, creative. It's up to you between the two. Uh, All right, we'll go with Google Drive. Okay. That's probably the most generally useful. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. 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 We finish every really useful podcast with a recommendation. What will normally happen is that I will offer you one and Ben will offer you one. And it's usually something that we've experienced over the past week. A, uh, maybe a game or a website or anything like that, really. Uh, ben, are you going first this week or me? Sure, I'll go first just to mix it up. Okay. So my recommendation for this week is a game called Towerfall. It's called Towerfall Ascension on some platforms. Um, it is made by the same people who worked on the platformer Celeste. If you've happened to hear of that game, it was an indie darling that came out a couple of years ago. But I don't hear people talk about Towerfall too much, and that's a shame because it's actually a really fun multiplayer game. It's like a local sit-on-the-couch type of game with your friends that's not super popular these days. So um, Towerfall is a super simple game. Basically, uh, it's for up to, I think, four players in the main mode and six if you do the extended stages. Um, you're all on a single-screen stage that's kind of like a, it's like a 2D uh, maze-ish looking stage, I guess. And everybody has a bow and arrow with a couple of arrows and they can jump and dodge. And your goal is to uh, get the most kills and be the first to 10 kills or whatever uh, across all the stages. So you get a kill when you squash someone or when you shoot them with an arrow and you play as many rounds as you need until somebody racks up the total number of kills. So um, it's a super fun game. It's really fun to just jump into with friends because there's only a few buttons. So it's simple. Um, there's a co-op mode if you prefer to fight off computer enemies instead of killing each other um, there's a bunch of power-ups to make the game more fun and there's a lot of customization you can do too so you can turn off certain power-ups um, you can change the rules to make you jump further and stuff like that so uh, it's a really fun pick up and play game um, simple kind of like smash brothers but even way, way more simple than that so i don't hear it talked about too often it's on switch steam ps4 and xbox one so pretty much anything uh, if you're looking for a game to play when when friends come over it's a it's a good time so i'd recommend it towerfall or towerfall ascension depending on your platform excellent uh, be sure to check that out uh, mine well if you're sick of netflix tired of disney plus not so much cock-a-hoop as you were over Hulu and not really interested in CBS. Uh, no, it's not Not really. It's, is it CBS or is it? No, it's Paramount, isn't it? Paramount Plus now. Paramount yeah. Plus, yeah. Uh, I have an alternative for you. It's BritBox. Now, there's a UK version of BritBox, which I use. There's also a US version of BritBox, which I whisper carefully and quietly. I used to use. And basically, BritBox is full of British TV and movies. You have got, a, you know, years and years and years and years and years, you know, 50 plus years of science fiction and drama to dig into. All British stuff. Some of it's terrible. Some of it's wonderful. Some of it's, most of it's halfway in between. You have shows like Doctor Who running from the 1963 to 1996 shows. So not, nothing, none of the modern stuff, just that era of Doctor Who. You've got... Uh, all of the Jerry Anderson puppet shows, which aren't really puppets, they're not like Muppet puppets, they're sort of like mannequin things. You've got all of those. You've got uh, really, you've got Sapphire and Steel, which is a show uh, with David McCallum, who's more 
recently in NCIS, although he's not so much in that so much these days, uh, that he did with uh, Joanna Lumley, who was a Bond girl. Uh, you've got the Persuaders, Tony Curtis and Roger Moore. You've got all sorts of terrible Hammer horror movies, terrible in a great way. Uh, you've got The Prisoner, the famous, iconic, mysterious show, The Prisoner, with uh, Patrick McGowan. You've got the original Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV show. You've got The Thunderbirds. You've got more recent things like sitcoms, like Ghosts. Uh, oh, I can't just... There's so much in there. Midsummer Murders, which I know is quite popular with uh, certain uh, societies in the United States. That's on there as well. Uh, it's Britbox. It's British, and it's on your box. That's what it's about. I've, I'm a big fan of Britbox. We watch it at least once a day. There's also one of my favourite sitcoms on there called One Foot in the Grave, which I would recommend to everyone because it's so well written. But, uh, yeah, so that's my recommendation. It's Britbox. I have never used the service, but it sounds pretty cool. I, I know next to nothing about British TV, so I'm sure that would be a wealth of entertainment I've never really cracked open. There is so much on there. It's, 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 it's crazy. And also, the great thing about it is you find that there's... Um, you'll run into people that are really famous doing stuff on British TV before they were really famous. I've just, uh, there's a show called Hammer House of Horror, which is a series of horror shows. I've just noticed uh, Brian Cox and Pierce Brosnan are both in episodes. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's a good one to go with. Oh, there's just so much in BritBox, and uh, some of it is uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, it depends on your uh, what what you're into and what you're after. But as I say, Persuaders and a lot of the other uh, sort of uh, US, UK, European co-productions from the early, late 60s and early 70s is in there as well. So they're worth checking out. But uh, I, I'm particularly excited because there are two series of a show that I love called The Professionals, uh, which is a very UK-centric show from the late 70s. And it's strangely timely because a, a lot of the a lot of the episodes, although admittedly not from the first two series, a lot of the episodes uh, dealt with uh, the Cold War and uh, elements of uh, aggression from the other side of the uh, the Iron Curtain. Strangely appropriate for these current times. But uh, yeah, that's my recommendation. It's Britbox. Britbox.com if you're in the US or Britbox.co.uk if you're in the UK. This nicely brings us to the end of this week's really useful podcast. As ever, everything you've heard was discussed can be found in the show notes. If you don't subscribe already, please do. Uh, you can subscribe. The best place to do so is on Apple Podcasts, where you can also leave us a review. And if you do that, I'll tell you what, I'll read it out on air. Yeah. Oh, wow. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye from us.